already. I'm in Bergheim, Texas, in the hill country. And I think, yeah, I'm here. The destination is on your left. And there's a big aluminum warehouse right here. I actually see a greenhouse with some, uh, what looks like some cannabis plants inside of it. Um, oh, and right behind it, there's rows and rows of cannabis plants. Oh wow, yeah, that's that's a whole that's a whole operation they got over there. Petri dish producer Dominic Anthony Walsh is at one of the first ever cannabis farms in Texas. Well, one of the first legal cannabis farms in Texas. So I'm standing right next to the outdoor farm right now. Uh, just rows and rows of CBD plants and uh, a very particular smell. Um, if, if you aren't familiar, somewhat skunky, but very much not in a bad way. You know, that's a really good description. So skunky is a very typical terpene that is in most of these plants. That's Austin Rupel. He lives there and he is the co-owner of Pure Isolabs, a hemp and CBD company. Um, so the cherry bubble gum will have a kind of a sugary, kind of a tart smell to it. Uh, the wife strain will have more of a limonene, kind of a uplifting effect and smell to it. Um, the T2 seems to have a little bit more of the blueberry indica kind of smell to it. So it should be a very diverse crop. That is some mix, but remember we're in Kendall County, Texas, and over the last year in this small county alone, more than 100 people were hit with misdemeanor charges that carry up to a half year in jail for possession of small amounts of illegal cannabis. So how does this entire field of cannabis even exist? You're looking at uh, permitted hemp in the state of Texas. We've got four different permits or lots or strains. So we've got a plant that's probably about two foot to three foot wide. It's about, this one here is about five foot tall. Uh, the plant we're looking at is the Titan strain. It's a very dense plant. It has very long branches with good flowering consistencies on the end. So it produces really big buds at the end of each branch. It looks just like a typical cannabis plant, but it's actually a hemp plant. And, and these buds are already getting getting pretty big. Yeah, the buds are very big. They have the crystals on them called trichomes, which is where all of the compounds and terpenes, which are the flavor or the smell of the plant, come from. And that's what we're actually growing. Okay, so hemp. It's a type of cannabis plant, but it contains much less THC, the compound that gets you high, than other types of cannabis. In Texas, legal hemp must contain no more than 0.3% THC. Hemp is generally grown for a different compound called CBD. Now that doesn't get you high, but it definitely does something for a lot of people and the popularity of CBD has exploded in the past couple of months. Uh, we do believe that it has the potential to help balance our daily lives and it's a great additive to our lives. Whether we're children, adults, grandparents, it's just a great balancing tool. From Texas Public Radio, this is Petri Dish. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Today, we're going to talk about preserving our mental health in the time of COVID. So CBD is one, 
as Rupal the cannabis grower calls it, balancing tool that some Americans are using to cope with the pandemic and will return to his farm later in the show. But one thing is clear, people are seeking balance. As we know, pandemic times aren't easy. With everything going on, you'd be forgiven if you weren't feeling quite yourself. You'd be forgiven if you were losing sleep. You'd also be forgiven if you were, you know, anxious, scared, sad, depressed, or or even if you were feeling something even deeper and maybe a bit darker. According to the National Center for Health Statistics, more than one in three American adults are reporting symptoms of an anxiety disorder right now. So if there are three grown-ups in your house, that's one of you. Maybe it's you. Last year at this time, the number was about one in 12. That's a lot of us, and, and we sort of know why. But let's dive in there, shall we? One is, as humans, we've, we've never really been great at dealing with uncertainty and not having answers. And this is really pushing us to the limit of really understanding that many things are really outside of your control. Dr. Stacy Obide is an associate professor and director of behavioral health education at UT Health San Antonio. She's also a psychologist who treats patients. There's so many things we don't know uh, about how what COVID is, the long-term impacts of COVID on the body, and as well as what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen with the school year, what's going to happen with you know, events and special events. Will we ever have large gatherings again? So here we are, stuck in our houses, the rhythms of our lives, so familiar and so soothing, are suddenly staccato. And the instruments, they all sound different, like they're from another culture somewhere across the sea. Everything's unfamiliar. And a lot of us are lonely. We're social beings as humans. We thrive off of social connection. And so we've had to really get creative of how do you still continue to have social connection when it's really not wise maybe to go face to face and go have a coffee with a friend or go out to dinner with a friend. And yet, and this is a big one for me, a lot of us are pretending everything is normal. We work full days, we we cook dinner, we binge watch our shows, we post on Facebook. Well, outside our houses, a thousand people are dying every day and tens of millions of people are out of work. This pretending, it's exhausting. It really doesn't give a person a chance to learn how to adapt, how to learn how to be flexible uh, and how to cope with reality that things are different and how can I live and learn how to live life differently. So I think it really robs a person an opportunity to gain and flex those muscles um, and build those muscles. Now, some of the stress and discomfort we're feeling is to be expected. 
Something, Obaid says, something might actually be wrong with us if we weren't feeling it. It's normal to be anxious right now. Um, we don't know what we're, what's going on with, the, with our kids when they go back to school. And you're, you're stressed out about that. That's normal to feel that way. Um, you haven't seen your best friends or your family since March, and you feel really down and sad about that. That's a normal human response to a very traumatic situation. Right. This is trauma. It's collective trauma. And it is not easy at all. So we wrote a post on social media asking how you are feeling these days. And we got some voice memos in return. Hey, Bonnie, it's Kathleen. I've been on furlough since St. Patrick's Day. No idea when my job's coming back. I'm just under full time, um, so I'm still considered part time. So I don't qualify for full unemployment benefits. That's That causes anxiety. Um, my kiddos are 13 and 11. Um, one is extremely so, the younger one is extremely social. There's tons of friends in the neighborhood. Um, the other one is not, and his friends were at school. Um, so, you know, very resentful about um, being separated from them. Hi, my name's Hillary, and I have three kids in public schools right now, and so that's a huge worry of mine. I am not employed at the moment. I actually lost my job over the winter, and this week, actually today, I just checked my bank account, and it was the first time it was the lower amount without the $600 boost from unemployment, and that's huge. It's been huge to us. I mean, it was, you know basically getting us to where we needed to be before all of this craziness. This is Lahuana LJ Chambers Lawson. It's been an opportune time in a lot of senses because I have been able to carve out time to do things that I want to do um, and put myself first in a way that I don't think I've ever done. But on the other side of that, there's all this loss you know, loss of family, loss of friends, loss of loved ones, loved ones. So it's been a very difficult time. We really, really appreciate everyone who so vulnerably shared their experiences with us. Hillary in Massachusetts, LJ, right here in San Antonio, Texas, and Kathleen in South Carolina. Now I want to bring back our producer, Dominic, because, Dominic, someone sent you a message that was really hard to hear. But first, let me ask, how are you holding up through all this? Hey, Bonnie. Yeah, obviously the experience of this pandemic is different for everyone. We've seen some celebrities and rich people, you know, posting quarantine videos from mansions and yachts. I don't have a yacht, but I do have a podcast and radio pieces to occupy my time and, you know, provide a steady income. All of that's to say there's a lot of privilege in being able to weather COVID-19 in comfort. Right. <laughs> Me too. I mean, there is privilege there. And sometimes I feel something like, I don't know, maybe it's a cousin to survivor's guilt, I think. I feel guilty about my own feelings of anxiety and despair because, you know, so many others are trying to navigate this with so much less than I have. So let's talk about that a little bit more. Uh, tell me about uh, the person who you heard from. Kai, right? 
Kai is 21. We're using their first name only because their story is painful and involves alcohol abuse. So, 21 and currently lives in San Antonio. And back in March, they were laid off. And then right after that, I found out I was pregnant. Um, being pregnant and having to deal with those emotions and what you're going to do and try and figure everything out is already scary within itself. Adding on a worldwide pandemic is 10 times worse. <laughs> and that was around the time that Attorney General Ken Paxton and Governor Greg Abbott said no more abortions, surgical or medical. And San Antonio implemented a stay-at-home order, and the whole pandemic thing was still really new for the state and for the city. And I mean, what am I going to do with a baby? I don't have health insurance. How would I pay to give birth in a hospital? How would I pay for a baby? Um, you know, it, it was terrifying. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, I was trying to, My boyfriend and I were really considering driving up to Colorado and having to get the abortion done there. But... Um, that would be more expensive, and also San Antonio just enforced its lockdown. Um, so we weren't sure if we were to get pulled over, if we were going to get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> um, I mean, it was so scary. <laughs> I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. The emotions that I had to deal with, it was so hard, and it, it was even worse because I couldn't even be with my friends and have them help me through that because of social distancing. Hanging out with friends just isn't the same through a five-inch screen, and there are some moments when hanging out in person, you know, physical contact, being close, all the things that we're now trying to avoid, there are just some moments when that's what you really need. Luckily, I ended up having a miscarriage um, because after the blood work and all the doctor fees, um, I was completely broke. All of the money I had saved went to either the doctor or rent. And um, yeah, I've been financially unstable ever since. <laughs> um, I still don't know if I were to get COVID and get sick, I don't know how I'd pay for it. Um, everything is just very uncertain and it's scary. And um, I've actually developed eating disorder because of it, um, and alcohol, substance abuse because of it, um, working on getting better, um, but it's just really hard because you can't really talk to your friends about it, um, you know, in person, you can't go out with that, um, you can't go to the beach or, you know, take your mind off of it, uh, you're really just kind of stuck inside, thinking, worrying, wondering. Thinking, worrying, wondering. Stress, anxiety, and depression are exacerbated by this pandemic. So, what should we do? Sure, I can answer that. I'm just trying to get my headphones to work. So this is like the reality of my life right now. And I think a lot of other people's, which is connection through technology. So let me just name that. And I'm really sorry. Um, but I have You know, what I almost sometimes talk about with the people I work with is 
you know, what's honestly true is that we haven't done this before. We're not prepared for it. We didn't know that it was coming. This is brand new. Like, it's okay to not know what to do, or it's okay to not feel good about what's happening. So this is your first pandemic? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, some, like some other people have been through pandemics, but this is my first time. Yeah. So pandemics are new to Serapis, but stress, anxiety, depression, and substance use are not. Serapis is a licensed mental health counselor in Olympia, Washington. What might be helpful is, first of all, to remember that if you're feeling a feeling, it's okay. Like, no, there's no feelings that are wrong or bad or, like, feelings don't kill people, right? It's it's just a feeling in, in your body and that it will pass because that is how feelings go. Um, they change. Also, name your feelings. This is something my therapist tells me all the time. I often describe things as cool or uncool. P says you should look for specific emotional words and descriptors. And they say you should sometimes sit with those feelings. If you feel depressed, you know, try feeling as depressed as you can for one minute and then doing something that you're wanting to do. Right? sometimes like letting yourself be like, sometimes people do really need to just lie under the covers and maybe that's okay. Also try to eat well, get some sunshine, write down your feelings and thoughts. <laughs> yes, these are all things I encourage my own 15-year-old to do that Dominic's encouraging me and you to do. But but it's a bit more difficult to get myself to do these things. I am trying, though. Still, uh, I spend a little bit too much time on Facebook eating peanut M&Ms. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, some Americans are turning to different types of products, different from peanut M&Ms to help them cope. We mentioned cannabis in particular, and it has seen a surge in sales. Yep. Rolling Stone reports that New York City's underground cannabis industry thrived while the city was shut down. Uh, The Denver Post reports that legal cannabis sales hit a record volume in May of this year. Pot use is up during this pandemic. So, what about that? You know, smoking a joint, eating an edible. Can that really help with stress, anxiety, and depression? Well, there isn't really a single answer to that question. And it's important to note that Peace is not a medical doctor, and they speak from anecdotal, observational experience. So first, substance use in general. Peace approaches it from a harm reduction standpoint. I use the model of harm reduction as it's meeting people where they are and helping them uh, step towards what they're wanting. Um, And so if somebody is wanting to ultimately stop using, then we can see what steps um, they can use for that. And then, um, you know, I, I also work with people who do not want to stop what they're doing, right? Because you know, addiction or just substance use uh, usually has some sort of really positive impact, right? People do it for a reason. It's not just, you know, this terrible thing. So peace meets people where they are and tries to help them get where they want to be. And with hard drugs and alcohol, it's a lot easier to overdose, die, harm yourself or others. Peace wants to reduce that harm, and that usually means reducing overuse if it's harmful. But 
With cannabis, it's a little bit different. First, it is less likely to cause harm, but also it's something that people actually might be interested in starting to use, even if they're already sober. Someone who's stressed, anxious, and or depressed, they might want to give cannabis a try. So how does that work out? In my experience, um, some people are very clear. They're like, it, it causes them anxiety. It doesn't feel good. Um, you know, the, um, you know, cannabis makes their heart race and makes them feel sweaty or makes their anxious thought loops go round and round. And it's really clear, right? There's not, in my, and when I've spoken with people, there's not too much like ambivalence when it doesn't work for somebody. It's pretty clear right away. And then they're like, nope, that's not for me. So that's some people. Other people have different experiences. They've shared, right, that it helps them with less anxiety, with being able to sleep, with being able to eat. The munchies and the nods, yes, yes, that, that matches up. So cannabis works for some people, not for others. It certainly is no panacea. Also, cannabis is still largely illegal at the federal level. Certain CBD products are now okay for certain uses, but THC is still a no-go. And quick refresher, CBD, the compound that doesn't get you high, THC does get you high. Sarah Peace, they don't recommend for or against the use of cannabis. They just give people the tools to check in on themselves and to reduce harm. Okay, I want to be very, very, very clear here. Neither Petri Dish nor Texas Public Radio encourage people to use cannabis, and neither does the federal government outside of very narrow circumstances like certain rare forms of epilepsy. But if you head on over to the National Institutes of Health website, there is a page with a summary of the literature that says cannabis has potential applications in many physiological conditions like epilepsy, but lots of other stuff too, like, like pain, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, and sleep issues. But growers and vendors of cannabis-related products have to be pretty careful about how they market them because of local, state, and federal regulations. So Dominic is back in Bergheim, Texas. Let's head back to him there. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. The little shop at Pure Isolabs is full of CBD goodies. Co-owner Jennifer Rupel shows me the product line. We have topicals, beverage additives. We also have your typical oils or tinctures. We've got um, your CBD isolate, which is going to be... Then you go to a broad spectrum, and we've got some broad spectrum tinctures. So a lot of goodies, and they're all carefully packaged. And some of the packaging on the raw hemp flower recently changed. The state of Texas just decided that smokable flour is not allowed at all. So the shop actually took the flour out of the packages labeled smokable and will put the flour in different packages and market them as products to make tea with. But I mean, you could still totally smoke it. They just aren't selling it for that use. This little anecdote really gets at how regulated this industry is, from production to packaging to marketing to use. And you can hear that in how Jennifer Rupel carefully chooses her words when she describes products. Um, and what we really find with that is when you get all of those working together, they kind of play off of each other, so you get um, just an enhanced benefit, let's say, from it. So um, that's kind of the difference there. Um, we've also got a new formula. Enhanced benefit. Okay. 
<laughs> yes, that that sounds nice. <laughs> right. What does that mean? I think people can read between the lines. For sure, for sure. And lots of people are doing just that. Rupal says demand for CBD at Pure Isolabs has crept upward a little bit over the past few months, especially for their online market. Okay, so some people really do find CBD helpful. So why is there all this complication, this sort of matrix of laws around this substance with maybe a lot of potential applications? Well, I asked someone about that. But wait a minute, wait a minute, is this... Are we? Yes, yes, yes. The Wayback Machine. Cannabis has been in use for millennia for, you know, a variety of purposes. But we're headed back less than a century to 1930. A new agency, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, is formed. Harry Anslinger is its first commissioner. But the country is already at the start of the Great Depression, and as it gets worse, the federal government needs to cut back on spending. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics was in danger of being eliminated entirely. So Harry Anslinger, the head of the FBN, had to come up with some reason not just to save his department, but to actually increase the budget. And what he came up was, was reefer madness. Martin A. Lee is the author of Smoke Signals, a social history of marijuana. And he's the founder and director of Project CBD, a nonprofit organization that promotes cannabis science and therapeutics. Anyway, it's 1936, and a propaganda film called Reefer Madness comes out. It paints cannabis with such colorful turns of phrase as unspeakable scourge, violent narcotic, the real public enemy number one, and ghastly menace. At the beginning of the film, a man addresses a group of parents at a school. This ceaseless fight against the drug traffic is directed by the Department of Narcotics, Washington. And then he reads a fake letter from a member of that department, and the film follows the events of the letter. Pretty innovative storytelling. Anyway, there's lots of dancing. Of course, smoking cannabis. If you want a good smoke, try one of these. Uncontrollable laughter. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, murder. Jack, is she all right? She's dead. And a kind of protracted, undramatic court scene. Your Honor, in this case, the state waves trial of the defendant, Ralph Wiley. It is convinced that he is hopelessly and incurably insane, a condition caused by the drug marijuana to which he was addicted. It is recommended, Your Honor, that the defendant be placed at an institution for the criminally insane for the rest of his natural life. And then back to the schoolroom with the parents. Yes. That happened right here, to your neighbor. It's important to note, a lot of the propaganda-driven fear around cannabis was closely tied to racism. And President Nixon and other administrations continued that legacy later in the 20th century. And now, nearly 100 years after reefer madness, black people are still much more likely to get arrested for cannabis than white people, even though rates of usage are pretty similar. This, this strange uh, evil weed, marijuana with an H, which was the same, it was the same plant, but it was only in tincture and concentrate form. It was in almost every American household using it for all these different things. And yet uh, it, it became, because of a racist campaign, 
um, it was it was made essentially illegal uh, marijuana and uh, and and the medicinal uses of cannabis were really in some ways lost to us you know for for centuries humankind has had a connection with the plant but because of marijuana prohibition we lost that connection and we're in the process of relearning that today so Lee says there are a ton of conditions that can be helped by CBD, including several that the U.S. Food and Drug Administration hasn't approved. I would say the three main conditions are pain, anxiety, and depression. There are many others, but let's focus on anxiety and depression. There's lots of research showing that CBD interacts with certain neurological pathways that could, maybe, help with anxiety and depression. But the research is not definitive yet. We still need big, randomized, double-blind clinical trials, the gold standard of pharmaceutical science. But here's the thing. Research is heavily regulated, and a lot of that regulation goes back to the intense stigma around cannabis. So I don't use cannabis. It's not my thing, really. My thing is peanut M&Ms. But, but it is a thing a larger number of Americans seem to be at least trying during this pandemic. And that tells us something interesting about different ways people are trying to cope with all of this uncertainty. There are, of course, other ways we're burning off steam, like taking walks or going for car rides or, you know, just generally being outside. Right behind that car, so scoot back. Okay. Go back behind this guy, yeah. You're not allowed to park up there. Okay. You have to park out here in the outside of parking. There he is. That's our reporter, Michael Trevino, and his uncle, Tom Trevino. They've been trying to make exercise, meditation, and just generally getting outdoors part of their lives since COVID-19 hit. So, Michael, let's stop before I make you take us through your morning with your uncle. How are you holding up? I'm pretty tired, staring at a screen all the time. And I'm typically a pretty active extroverted person. So this whole pandemic has made me feel very cooped up and isolated most of the time. But I do my best to manage sleep, get as much human interaction as I can, as safely as I can. But I'll say it's, it's a hard balance these days. So these outings with your uncle, they help? Yeah, they do. We're walking through a beautiful green space in San Antonio. A gravel path leading us through a thick canopy of trees with a cool grassy field in the middle. And it's really tranquil, right? It's really kind of nice. It's a different environment than being inside of a gym. Got fresh sunlight, fresh air, and uh, just made people really happy to be out here. Tom's a personal trainer, and he's used this space to bring clients to exercise since the pandemic began. This is a little meditation center that they built, a meditation room, specifically for that purpose. It's open all the time. I believe there's sometimes mats in here, but it's made for people just come in here and kind of relax, do yoga, meditation. Again, totally open, um, really tranquil space. And uh, again, just really pretty to kind of come here and relax. As long as I've been alive, Tom's been something of the health nut of the family. Though over this summer, I've been working out with him to stay busy and found out that that wasn't always the case. Yeah, so I guess, um, I mean, I know your story. I know, I know where uh, you growing up and, you know, had a lot of, gained a lot of weight, kind of suffered. For, you can call me a fat kid. You, so it's not going to hurt my feelings. <laughs> yeah, so I grew up uh, a really unhealthy kid. I was a fat kid, and then unfortunately that turned into being an obese adult. So my first year of college, um, I got close to being to 300 pounds. Didn't quite hit it, but I was definitely on my trajectory going that direction. Um, personally, it was not obviously being a good place in, in my life. I was not very happy, um, and um, 
don't know if we've, depression would be accurate, but definitely not in a good space. So started kind of taking care of myself and, and paying more attention to my health. Started trying to um, work out a little bit more regularly, clean up my diet a bit. And that kind of opened the door for me to uh, a really different existence um, that I've had ever since. Yeah, I think the physicality of health is, unfortunately, it's the easy thing to take pictures of and shoot videos of. It's really easy to put an impressive video online and people look at that and think that is health, but that is not really health. That's just one small element of health. You do wanna look at, again, things like sleep patterns, you wanna look at overall stressors, you wanna look at nutritional intake, you wanna look at their social connection, you wanna look at hydration, you wanna look at everything connected to the body and your workouts and the things you do physically are just one aspect of it. While we've been working out together, he's been sharing a lot with me and I've been able to understand how to balance my life where I can. The one place that I'm particularly bad at this is social media and screen time. I tend to overstimulate myself. But if you're really healthy, I think you can be in the middle of this empty room like we are and just be happy and content. Like this is peaceful, this is happy, this is healthy right here. Um, there's nothing around us. We're just in this beautiful preserve here, right? With nature and you can hear the birds outside and it's just like, this to me is kind of healthy. This is a really good thing. We decided to do some stretching and breathing exercises. Just some light stuff for a rest day. Just kind of drop your head and chest down. Kind of reach back. Come back up from that position. Come back down. I'm tight today. And then we're gonna take this right hand, we're gonna reach over underneath and through. And reach all the way through as far as you can on this opposite side. Okay. We've been doing a lot of this over the past few months, chatting and being active. It tends to be a highlight of my day whenever we get together. How do you feel after your workouts? How do you feel when you leave the gym? I feel like I've accomplished something. My head's cleared and I feel energized at the same time. Yeah, I always feel good. And I think some of that too, like part of that is like we talk about social connection. We get to see each other and get to socialize, interact with other people. So there's the aspect of it that we get. So not only are we getting the physical side of it, we get that social connection and that just uh, makes me happy. It makes me happy too. It is a good day. It's a good way to start. All right, let's get in the car. All right, good. <laughs> I just want to I just want to hang out with these two. It sounds really relaxing and you know what? There is science behind why their active socializing makes them feel good. So, what I like to tell people is that moving your body uh, is one of the most immediate and most powerful ways that you can have an immediate effect on your brain. That's Dr. Wendy Suzuki. She's a neuroscientist and a psychologist at NYU who studies the connection between the brain and the body. She's also an exercise instructor. And for the past 10 years, Suzuki's lab has been looking into just that exercise and the brain. Which is also interesting because um, exercise is, uh, physiologically speaking, a stressor. It is a stress that you're, you're stressing your body and cortisol goes up with exercise. And you think, oh, that's bad. I don't want more cortisol. Right. We're all stressed enough these days, so no more cortisol, please. But turns out there's more than just cortisol in the mix. The image that I like to give people is that every time you work out, it's like giving your brain a wonderful neurochemical-filled bubble bath. What is in that bubble bath? Noradrenaline, dopamine, serotonin. 
which in English can improve your mood. It can decrease your depression and anxiety levels, improve your energy levels. Perhaps you've heard of a runner's high. You, you know, once you get past the pain of, <laughs> I'm not a runner, so that that's from my personal perspective. But I have occasionally got to a point where there's a period where, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm doing it. I, I, I'm feeling good and I'm feeling open and, and uh, kind of uh, um, uh, very calm and, and, and focused. So please don't tell me you have to actually run to sink into this neurochemical-filled bubble bath, because as much as I love bubble baths, I am not running unless someone's chasing me. Um, even walking, the kind of the lowest level of physical activity one when most people have access to, um, that stimulates the release of neurotransmitters. So I guess the question then is, you know, how do I do this? How much do I have to do to get that nice little boost? Do I have to do laps? And if so, how many till I can, you know, get back on the sofa with my daughter and my dogs and my cats and my M&Ms? Yeah, you have uh, just asked the most uh, common question that I get. You know, just tell me exactly how much I need to do. How many push-ups? How many sit-ups? And, and just give me that formula. And unfortunately, we don't know. Well, that's a shame. And it's going to vary based on different aspects that should make sense. Like your age, what type of exercise you're doing, and your current fitness level. But the most important thing, Suzuki says, is break a sweat. What I like to recommend is start small. The biggest mistake you can make is try and go to that really, really hard, you know, scary boot camp class. Go for a walk or a swim or maybe a virtual Zumba class. Find something you don't completely dread, maybe something you even enjoy, and just do it. Uh, if you're going to make this commitment, find a time in the day that you will give to this regularly. But we've also been talking about the importance of balance in this equation, right? Uh, meditation is a another wonderful, I, I call it a parallel research uh, question. <sighs> Meditating, finding a quiet place, unplugging from the buzz of life, and instead turning into yourself, your mind, and your body. Doesn't that sound nice? And I know you don't have time to sit around, but try this. Ask yourself, how much time every day do I spend doom scrolling through the news online? And if you're me, the answer is far too much. So trust me when I say balancing exercise and a couple of minutes of quiet meditation is a thing that's possible. It's really interesting because some of the effects that you see are parallel when the actual intervention is so different. One is, you know, jump up and down and get your heart rate up. And the other is be quiet, just breathe deeply. That's all you have to do. But both of them are having um, similar effects on mood, on anxiety levels go down for both, depression levels go down, stress levels go down for both. And don't neglect sleep. Good sleep is absolutely essential to good brain health and optimal brain health. Um, and I would go so far as saying if, if you're not, you know, if you're really sleep deprived, you, you're not going to be able to benefit as much from either exercise or meditation. Balance is never easy. It wasn't in the before times, before the pandemic, and it's not now. 
But exercise, meditation, and sleep don't just boost your brain health. It's affecting your um, whole body systems, your immune system, your cardiorespiratory system, your cardiovascular system. So yes, it's a full body effect. And stress, especially that five months into a pandemic that doesn't nearly seem to be over yet stress, that can erode both your mental and physical health. So sleep is important. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But I want to talk about one more thing before we move on to that. We've talked a bit about isolation. We're isolated a lot of the time. We're being asked to isolate, right? To flatten the curve, to reduce the spread of infection. But we also do really need to socialize. Um, socialization is critical. We all need that. We need that human contact. Um, and it's, it's okay to do it and don't shame people for doing it. Dr. Cherise Rohr-Allegrini is an epidemiologist and she's seen online in particular, but elsewhere, a lot of shaming of people who are out and about socializing when it's obvious that they are taking precautions and doing it responsibly. Shaming, we know, is not effective. Um, most people, when they're shamed, they with, withdraw from that, um, that community interaction, but they do it on the sly. They do it secretly. They do it quietly um, because they're offended by it. Or they do it very brazenly, so they go in the opposite direction, um, but they don't do it more safely. She says that people are more likely to make better choices when they have better information. The mistake we made early on was that we, we by we, I mean CDC and various public health experts, called it social distancing. And that's the opposite of what we want. It's not social distancing. We want physical distancing. Because you can still socialize, but you have to do it physically distant. So what does that mean? That means wearing your mask, right? Wearing it correctly, not under your nose, okay? And uh, feeling a bit more comfortable to go outside to see people because the coronavirus transmits quite poorly outside. So if you're indoors uh, and you're within six feet of somebody, you're going to uh, risk transmission. Now, the indoor versus outdoor thing just really has to do with the air circulating. You know, outdoors, um, it's kind of like the virus gets diluted in all that air versus inside. So if you combine outdoor socialization with proper mask wearing, with your safe six, you know, the six feet of distance, then you could feel at ease that you've really reduced your chance of transmitting or catching the COVID virus. And scientists are always very careful. I mean, we're not going to say something's 100% if it's 98. Um, so that's just, that's who we are. That's how we work. Um, and that's very frustrating because people want to know, you know, when's this going to be over? Uh, I want to know that if I wear a mask, I'm 100% protected. Well, no, you're not, but your risk is lower. And lower is really the best you could do, right? The only way to be 100% sure that you won't catch the COVID virus is to abstain completely from human interaction. And for most of us, that is just really not possible. We, we can't expect people to not uh, socialize. We just can't. That's not... We can, we can do anything for a short period of time. We're not going to be able to do that for two years. So we need, we need to find ways to interact in a safe, in a safe way. The same as that we taught for HIV education. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the same thing. Um, how do you do it safely? So this virus is going to be with us for a while. We don't know how long, 
but the 1918 pandemic lasted around two years. So we're going to have to figure out a way to interact responsibly for both our physical and mental health. And we can do both. So most of the information researchers have gathered on changes in mental health during this pandemic that we've been talking about during this episode is based on self-reports. That is, researchers asking people how they're feeling and people telling them. We've also shared a lot of pre-pandemic research on things that might help. But I wondered if changes in our mental health could be measured physically, in real time, right now, during the pandemic. And then I remembered a particular researcher I'd interviewed in the before times in 2019 about a huge research project she was working on using, in part, wearable devices to measure people's physical activity 24-7. You may wear a device like this, like a Fitbit, to count your steps, like a lot of these folks walking and running in a park in San Antonio this weekend. But wearable devices can also measure things like sleep patterns and heart rate. That's what Dr. Amara Kurub and her team have been doing in her lab since 2018. My lab is half experimental and half computational. We're focused on understanding how the brain repairs itself. And we're, we have this large scale study called the Quantu Project, where we're focused on looking at brain health across a lifespan. And we're using a combination of artificial intelligence methods and experiments in the lab to study how neurons form and also looking at people's cognitive health scores across a lifespan. Kudub is a professor at the University of Texas in San Antonio in the Department of Biomedical Engineering. She also leads the Quant2 Project, part of the UTSA AI Matrix Consortium. And now she's specifically looking at markers related to cognitive health and mental health during the pandemic. What has she found? There's a pandemic that's caused by the virus directly, but there is also a depressive pandemic. Oh, a depressive pandemic. What I mean by that is you can obviously see, and we see this from our surveys, we can see this from the quantitative data from the wearable devices, that there is a a huge number of people who are affected adversely in terms of their mental health by the pandemic and the stresses of the pandemic. The Quantu Project team is in a unique position to track how people reacted as this pandemic crawled across the globe. Because we have the infrastructure in place, both the recording from the wearable devices, the artificial intelligence methods to create the data and interpret signatures, and we have the volunteer cohorts. Specifically, we have volunteers in Texas and in California in cities where there's a high prevalence of COVID-19 and there's been stay-at-home orders. For the COVID portion of the study, her team has been tracking 63 volunteers comparing volunteers' data against the same volunteers' information from last year at this time has been illuminating. We've identified six cohorts of people who are changing in very unique ways as a function of being exposed to the pandemic environment, meaning stay-at-home orders and their lifestyle changing. So among them are people who are changing the number of steps that they walk, their heart rate is increasing or their heart rate is decreasing. We also have a group where their REM duration, so their monthly sleep in terms of rapid eye movement sleep has been changing at night. 
Cudub is particularly interested in changes to REM sleep. So rapid eye movement sleep is a type of sleep that's light sleep, and you go into it um, multiple times during a night. It is a signature of when your brain is able to repair itself and also consolidate memories. So in the process of REM, you might be having some dreams, but you may not remember them necessarily. You also will be having processes in your brain where your, your synapses can be reorganizing and in, in a sense, repairing themselves. And this helps clear your brain of wastes and it helps uh, change your metabolism and rejuvenate yourself during the course of a night. Changes in REM sleep have been linked to changes in mental health status. So REM sleep, the duration of REM has been associated with depression. So some people have believed that you have increased REM when you're depressed. Others believe that you have shorter periods of REM when you're depressed. It's also been associated with age-associated uh, cognitive impairment and with dementia. And for the volunteers in her study, at least, REM sleep is changing dramatically. So one of the things we can measure is wake during sleep. So how many times are you waking up during the middle of the night? And also when you go into REM, so your REM latency period. And these have been changing for individuals. So people are waking up more and they're going into REM later or earlier than they normally would. In one subset of volunteers, REM duration increased on average 21%, and one volunteer increased their average REM sleep duration by 265% per night. Cudup says it's clear people enrolled in her study are experiencing disordered sleep compared to their sleep patterns from a year ago. And then there are the changes in activity and resting heart rate, she mentioned. Overall, not surprisingly, 67% or so people have decreased their number of steps that they walk. So overall, there's more sedentary activity. And in the group with the elevated resting heart rate compared to last year, this group consists mostly of men. So in these individuals, their basal heart rate, heart rate changing might indicate that their lifestyle has affected them in a way which is unhealthy for them longitudinally. It could also mean other things. We're looking at it potentially as a signature for depressive episodes or for even COVID-19 itself. So Cutup has all this information coming in, and she and her team are trying to figure out what to make of it all and then what to do about it. So if you have less activity, that could lead to to more depression. And one of the things that we're interested in is, can we intervene? So we're doing intervention studies where we're looking at ways to improve exercise and induce people or motivate people to exercise in different ways. And also, not just exercise, but sleep. Can we motivate a proper sleep hygiene? Can we motivate higher quality sleep? Both doctors, Kudab and Obide, also note there are people who are doing better than they were before during this pandemic. Yes, not as many, but they're out there. I'm seeing that in patients who have said, you know what, I really didn't have time to fit in exercise into my life, but now I'm working from home. So now I can, you know, turn on a YouTube video and do some a Zumba video in my living room three times a week for 30 minutes during my lunch break um, that I otherwise really didn't get a chance to do before. And Cudup wants to figure out what the difference is between those who are doing well and those who are struggling. Well, look at the people who are ones that we're worried about and that we need to intervene with, but we also want to look at the people who are really positively changing in the pandemic. How are they doing it? How are they coping? And then really tailor 
interventions to an individual and then also learn from the people who are on either extremes, those who are responding very poorly to the stresses of the pandemic and those that are actually improving their health. And speaking of those who are responding poorly to the stresses of the pandemic. Do you really need this? What do you want to do, post it for you? How about that? I think I'll get real close to you and hop on you then. How's that? What is even going on here? Oh, look here. That man harassed me for not wearing a mask. I have a breathing problem. My doctor would not let me wear a mask. So anyone harassing me to wear a mask, you guys are violating federal law. Do you get that? Get that on camera. So I asked Dr. Obide at UT Health San Antonio, and she says there are a lot of theories about why some people are acting so objectively terrible these days. And of course, each situation is unique. But one thing we may be seeing is something called ethical or moral drift. What is ethical drift, do you ask? Cornell University human development professor Robert Sternberg wrote an essay about the concept of moral or ethical drift, comparing it to the situation in the 1944 Alfred Hitchcock movie, Lifeboat. In the movie, several marooned people who have survived two shipwrecks find themselves adrift in the middle of the ocean. Their supplies start to run out, and soon, Sternberg writes, their drifting lifeboat becomes a metaphor for their drifting ethical standards. Somebody gonna give me a hand? When in a situation like this, Dr. Obite says, some people start behaving in ways they never would have dreamed of before the environmental stressors started piling up. It is something that we are definitely all susceptible to. Um, I think sometimes it's it's easy to look at someone and point the finger of, well, I would never do that. But I'm sure we could probably look back at a time even recently where we even had some moral drift. In Lifeboat, one of the marooned passengers hides fresh potable water from his thirsty boatmates, even killing one to protect his tiny flask. Gus said Willie had some water. Yeah, right under his shirt. He ends up paying for that with his own life, even though his boatmates were not killers before they ended up in this situation. Please, please, Miss Alice. Sternberg writes that ethical drift typically occurs when there is intense competition for resources, as on the lifeboat, or when people think they perceive others acting in ways that are ethically compromised. It could also happen if people perceive there can only be winners and losers, nothing in between, that they're in a zero-sum game. And it might also happen when people see no other viable way out of the situation they're in. They're stuck. Stuck on a lifeboat or stuck in a pandemic. And so they may drift. People pushing back against masks use, um, people pushing back against physical distancing, people even pushing back against do we go to school or not, or how do how do we do how do we do this in terms of uh, bringing back people for for school in the fall? And so I think all of that together, I think we're trying to figure out how, how do we do life now, and um, it's hard. 
So rather than wear a mask, for example, or keep their distance, a person may strut across the Pier 1 and cough in the face of another shopper who is recording them. Not excusing those behaviors, but making sense of why would somebody do that? You know, when you're asking yourself that question, when you're watching a video of somebody berating a store employee for kindly asking them to put on their mask because it's the store county policy to do so, uh, it, it starts to make a little bit more sense as to why some of those poor behaviors are showing up all over. Sternberg writes that moral or ethical drift can be so insidious, people don't even notice they're behaving in uncharacteristic ways until they find themselves shrieking at a customer service employee at Trader Joe's. Well, Sternberg didn't give the Trader Joe's example. That's me. Sternberg said people may not notice they've drifted until they look up at the stars from their lifeboat and notice all the constellations have shifted. They've moved. Maybe a lot. Their boat isn't anywhere near where it was when the journey started. It's drifted way off. Obaid says for those who've drifted, one way to morally reset is to, you know, just start to accept things as they are. The acceptance piece is, it's, it's a big, tall, mountain <laughs> for some for some folks um, for some folks it's a little hill that they can just hop over or, or walk over and for some folks it's mount everest where you know it's it's pretty tough to get get over or or go through um, but it's possible um, acceptance opens the doors for so many things for for somebody to move forward to move on uh, to ask questions to understand so it's it's so important in just in life. You know, we're talking about coping with with COVID related stress, but just with any change in life, acceptance of the fact that change is inevitable um, and that's that's how we go forward is really important um, and really hard for people, too. But uh, man, if we can begin to break down some of that enormous mountain in front of some people who um, have a really difficult time with change, that can really, really help. I talked to Dr. Obite for a long time, <laughs> probably because I, like many of you, am struggling to make sense of everything that's going on now. Our old lives, they're gone. And really, they're never coming back, not exactly the same way anyway. And and I've spent a lot of time working on this acceptance piece, as Obaid calls it. But reaching acceptance is not the whole battle, right? Then you face the question, what's next? Obaid says small things can help if lack of structure caused by working from home or having your kids home all the time is, you know, making you a little bit nuts. Build structure into your life and your kid's life, like getting up at the same time every day, getting dressed in normal clothes, not the sweats I've favored for months, creating a schedule for yourself and your family and trying to stick to it. If you've been furloughed or laid off and you're suffering identity loss after losing your job, remember, you are not your job. Say it again. You are not your job. 
Focus on your friends and family. Cultivate those relationships. Explore other gifts you've never had time for before. I'm thinking about buying a violin, an instrument I've always dreamed about learning to play, but really never had the time to make such a purchase make sense, you know? But it feels like this might be the time for that. My identity could become mother, sister, friend, journalist, violinist. How about if you've just had a little bit too much togetherness in your family? People you love, but oh my God, I need a break. Well, give yourself a break. Give yourself and each other a little space and a little grace. If you're doing all of these things and you still don't feel quite right, you're not sleeping quite right, nothing feels right, Obite says reach out to your doctor. They want to hear from you and they are not too busy for you right now. They can help. And she says all these things we've been talking about today, they're really about building resilience and acknowledging that this is a hard time and that's okay. And I'm doing the best I can with what I have to work with. I think if that type of thought process can begin uh, in a person, that can really begin those the budding, kind of that budding flower of starting to build some resilience that I can make it through this. Now, there are those of us who have slipped much deeper into depression all across the country right now, and they will need the people around them to help them out. Major depressive disorder is no joke. I've experienced it, and it can kill. When you're experiencing MDD, just getting out of bed can be a heroic act, and reaching out for help may be well, it may be impossible. So if you suspect someone in your circle has gone too deeply into depression to help themselves, help them make an appointment with their primary care doctor who can get them more targeted help if they need it. And if you suspect they're thinking about harming themselves, even killing themselves. Ask. I think that's the biggest thing that um, we might be really afraid of, of doing. Uh, there's there's a misnomer out there that, well, if I ask them about it, I'll give them the thought to go and follow through with suicide, which is uh, not the case. Start the conversation. And if it becomes clear your loved one's life may be in danger, give them this number to text, okay? Have it handy. 741-741. They just text the word HOME to that number. 741-741-HOME. This crisis text line provides free mental health service texting for just about any crisis situation, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Or you can give them the number of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and maybe even just, just be with them when they call. 1-800-273-273. 1-800-273-TALK. You won't regret it if you do this, if you start that conversation, even though it's extremely uncomfortable, I know. I promise you won't regret it. You may regret it forever, though, if you don't try. Bottom line, I've said it before, <laughs> we're all in this together. We can only get through this together. 
this episode of Petri Dish was produced by Dominic Anthony Walsh and Michael Trevino. Our sound designer is the brilliant Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. Our news director is Dan Katz. This podcast is a production of Texas Public Radio. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon.